All right, can I get you to keep your Bibles open there at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 12 to 34. Our Father, we thank you again that we can come before you and hear your word. We thank you that you have been speaking to us as your word was read. And we pray, Father, would you please continue to speak to us, uh, even as we consider this word together. May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. Uh, please help me to uh, preach your word properly. And we pray that you be working in each one of us, that we might respond rightly to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there life after death? Some people have looked at near-death experiences and said, yes, yes, there must be. Others say there must be another explanation for that phenomenon. Is there life after death? Different religions have different views about life after death. Some speak of reincarnation, soul enters into another body. Others speak of resurrection, the body comes to life again. Yet others speak of a soul that's just a soul in heaven or hell or roaming the world in a shadowy existence. Is there life after death? And how can we know? Well, the Bible tells us that there is indeed life after death. And those who belong to Christ are with him when they die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is better by far. But the emphasis of Scripture is not being in heaven when we die, even though it's true, because we are created physical beings. God in His goodness created the physical world, and it was very good. It's broken now because of sin. The whole creation is groaning and our bodies are wasting away. Everyone will die once and after that face judgment. But but God has a plan for the world and God has a plan for us who believe. We will be with Christ when we die, yes. It's better than being here, yes. But that's not the ultimate plan. God's plan is to bring us back with Christ when he returns and to raise us from the dead physically, bodily. And that is what we are really looking forward to. And so we say each week, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. As we studied 1 Corinthians over the past few months, however, we've discovered that the Corinthian church had many problems. And here's one of the biggest ones. Some of them were even denying the future resurrection. It's right there in the second half of verse 12 of chapter 15. Paul says to them, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can how could you say there's no resurrection and still call yourself Christian? To say this, there's no resurrection is, is completely inconsistent with being Christian because it's inconsistent with the gospel. In the previous passage, which we looked at last week, and Kenneth reminded of, us of just now, 
the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel they had received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He took the punishment for sin on our behalf. And he was buried, which means he was really dead. And he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, showing that he truly is God's King, which he had promised. He was seen by many eyewitnesses, showing that he really is alive. And Paul says, this is the gospel that was preached to you, which you received, on which you stand, and which you have to keep on believing until the very end, if you're going to be saved. Christ really did die for our sins, and he really, really rose again. And so he says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? If Christ rose, how can there be no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then the gospel is a whole lot of rubbish, a fairy tale, a myth, a lie. And you cannot be saved by believing it. So what will it be? Either you believe the gospel and you believe in the resurrection or you reject the resurrection and you lose the gospel. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Paul now takes the Corinthians on a thought experiment. Hypothetically, What would it mean if Jesus were not raised? What would it be like if the resurrection didn't really happen? Well, to start with, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Oh, wasting our time preaching the gospel. And you, he says, you're wasting your time believing it. Because it's simply not true. But worse, verse 15 We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Paul and the other apostles, they claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of him. And, well, if Christ wasn't raised, then they are false witnesses. They are found, verse 15, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then this whole gospel message is a lie. If Christ was not raised, then he wasn't the Messiah that he claimed to be. If Christ was not raised, he is not the Holy One of God that he claimed to be, who would not see decay. And his death is of no use to us. It was simply like any other death, the result of his own sin. And our sins would not have been paid by him. They would still be the millstone that would drag us down under the waves of divine judgment. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Imagine how terrible it would be to still be in your sins. Wouldn't that be awful? Imagine how terrible it would be if Christ didn't die for you and rise again. Imagine how terrible it would be if your sin was on your own shoulder, that you'd have to face God on the last day, and you'd have to face His wrath for your disobedience. Imagine how terrible it would be if you were not one of God's dearly loved children, but but were one of His enemies. Imagine how terrible it would be if your future was not glory with Jesus forever in the new creation but eternal darkness and ruin. How awful is that? That's what it would be like if Christ were not raised. And if Christ is not raised, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. They're just dead, dead, finish. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 19, in this life only we have hope in Christ. All we can have from Him is what He gives us now. All we can have from Him is in the here and now. And what do we get in the here and now? Suffering, labor, Sacrifice. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 10 says, 19 says, We are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. For you see, we sacrifice in light of the resurrection. We suffer in light of the resurrection. We labor for the Lord now in light of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we have nothing to show for it. And we are of all people most to be pitied. For if Christ has not been raised, we have no salvation, no forgiveness, no reward, no future. That is what the Bible says. If Christ were not raised, we are wasting our time, our effort, our suffering, our sacrifice. Don't even bother staying to the end of the service. We may as well just leave now. Real Christianity depends on a real resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Of course, if you substitute real Christianity for a false pseudo-Christianity, then you can create your own religion that doesn't require the resurrection. And sadly, there are people who have done this. Let me introduce you to the Right Reverend Marion Edgar Buddy, Bishop of Washington. She's a bishop in the Episcopal Church of the USA. It's an organization that bears a superficial resemblance to Anglicanism, 
but is by and large, in its leadership at least, not even Christian. She's quite typical of leaders in that institution. I only pick on her because she wrote about this in her official blog from the Diocese of Washington and the website uh, during Easter time this year. Let me read to you what it says. Someone once asked me if I thought the resurrection was necessary. He meant it in the most sincere way, as a person of both faith and doubt who wondered if we needed to be bounded by so unreasonable a proposition that Jesus' tomb was in fact empty on that first Easter morning. I hesitated in answering, because there seemed to be layers of argument behind the question. My answer was yes, resurrection is the foundation of Christian faith, but probably not in the way he meant it. To say that resurrection is essential doesn't mean that if someone were to discover a tomb with Jesus' remains in it, that the entire enterprise would come crashing down. The truth is that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death any more than we can know what will happen to us. We don't know what happened to Jesus after his death any more than we can know what will happen to us. Can you believe that? And then she goes on to redefine the resurrection as a sense of being touched by something that is powerful enough to change you or gentle enough to give you courage to persevere. A whole lot of rubbish, really. She does not believe in the resurrection of the dead. She preaches another gospel. She is a false teacher. She is leading people to hell. That is the blunt truth of the matter. Friends, Bishop Buddy says that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death, and so we don't know what will happen to us. But we do know what happened to Jesus, don't we? And we do know what will happen to us. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead guarantees our resurrection in God's plan. And Paul goes on to stress this in verse 20. But the fact, in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who sleep. The word first fruits simply means the, the first of a set. Uh, in Old Testament times, the first part of the harvest was offered to God to, to thank Him for the harvest that was going to follow. When you talk about first fruits, you mean there's you know, the first, it's the first one, and there's many, many more coming after that. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not actually unique. It's, well, it's unique so far, right? But it's not actually unique. It's the, it's the first fruits. Jesus, the ultimate, true, perfect man, comes first, and the rest of us come after that. We know what happened to Jesus, and we know what will happen to us. Christ has been raised from the dead and we 
will be raised as well. That's what he says. Now, this one and many thing is not surprising in the way God does things. It's quite normal. It's happened before, but the other way around. Adam was the first man. And because he sinned, he was the first one. And then death came to everyone who followed him. And all of us who came from Adam die because we are children of Adam. Jesus is the new Adam, who obeyed like Adam failed to do. He is the perfect man. And all of us who belong to Jesus will be raised because we are not only in Adam, we are in Christ. And so Paul says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You see, it's true that Jesus is God. Right? But what's important for the argument of this passage is that not only is he truly God, but he is truly man. It's Jesus' humanity that's on view here, not his divinity. He's the perfect man. And he's the first of the new humanity to be the new humanity, the, the resurrected, perfected humanity. Adam died, Jesus rose. And those who are in them, those who belong to them, those who are united with them in God's sight, share their fate. If you are in Adam, and all of us are, then you die like Adam. But if you are in Christ then you rise like Jesus. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? If you belong to Christ, if you're united with Him by faith, not only are all your sins forgiven, but you have the promise, the guarantee of resurrection glory like him. And you are not to be pitied above anyone. You are far, far, far better off than every man, woman or child who is simply in Adam. Don't go and compare yourselves to your non-Christian friends and think they're better off than you. You have a future that is so great that it's beyond anything that we can imagine. You will be raised like Christ. And you can count on it. Because Christ has indeed been raised. He's the first of the set. He's the captain of the team that comes out on the field and then the rest of the team follow after him. He's been raised from the dead. And the rest of us on his team are following right on after. And when do we do that? When does this happen? Well, the Holy Spirit through Paul gives us the plan. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, so number one, Christ is raised. Then at his coming, those who belong to him, so number two, when he returns, those who belong to him are raised. And then number three, verse 24, then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now what does this mean? Remember the important thing in this passage is not Jesus' divinity, but his humanity. Think about the place of humanity in God's plan. Back in Genesis, when God created the world, he made humankind to rule the world under him, isn't it? And remember our Old Testament reading from Psalm 8? Verse 6 says that God has given him dominion over the works of his hands, and he has put all things under his feet. Human beings are given dominion over all the rest of creation. All things under his feet. And in Psalm 110, the Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, that is the Messiah, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so here Paul's saying that, that Jesus must reign until, until his enemies are under his feet, and he's linking it back to the Psalms. Jesus, Psalm 110, he's the Messiah. He is God's king. He fulfills the destiny of God's promised king. He rules over his enemies. And he fulfills the destiny of Psalm 8, the destiny of man to to rule over all things. Because he is the perfect man. Adam failed to realize the human destiny. But Jesus succeeds. Right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father that is the place of ultimate authority. And the day will come when that authority is expressed in all its fullness. When every last enemy, when every foe that opposes him, when everything that stands in the way of the perfect expression of God's kingdom is destroyed. And even death the last and great enemy of God's people is abolished. And Jesus reigns supreme and unopposed. The perfect, worthy man rules creation as God intended with all things under his feet. God is a loving ruler of the world made the world and he made us human beings to rule the world under him. Jesus is that true human being. Now notice he, God's plan is that man would rule but not autonomously but, but under him isn't it? Man rules the world under God's loving rule. And so verse 27 continues, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things in subjection under him. That is, the all things that God the Father put under Christ's feet obviously doesn't include God the Father himself. And then verse 28, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Right? The perfect man rules under God. 
That was always the plan. And that's perfectly consistent with Jesus' divine nature as well. The Son submits to the Father as he has done for all eternity. Jesus, true God, true man, not only takes his rightful place, but gives the Father his. Adam tried to usurp God. Jesus gives the Father what he is due. And through Jesus, God puts everything right. The universe is now back to how it's meant to be. God's plan to reverse the fall and all its effects put into action. But God ruling with a true man ruling under him. And you know what? It all depends on the resurrection of Jesus. And it also involves the resurrection of all who are in him. If Jesus is not raised and we are not raised, then this plan doesn't happen. Because if we are not raised, then death is not defeated. And remember, death itself is an enemy, the last enemy that we abolish in the process of putting everything under Jesus. And so God's plan to put everything right involves not just the resurrection of Jesus, but our resurrection as well. And so in light of the resurrection of Christ in the past, and in light of God's plans for the future, how could we possibly deny the coming resurrection? In the next section, Paul changes the direction of his argument. He tells the Corinthians that whether they realize it or not, they were actually acting as if they did believe the resurrection. For they had a practice of doing something that seems a bit strange to us. Actually, it seems a lot strange to us. And it's not mentioned anywhere else in the whole Bible. It seems there were people who were intending to get baptized, put their trust in Christ, but then died before their actual baptism. And so someone else got baptized on their behalf. Now presumably to express on behalf of the recently deceased person that they had been given new life in Christ before they died. Paul doesn't say we ought to do this. He just doesn't say we shouldn't do it. He just says the Corinthians did do it. And the reason they did it was because they believed that death was not the end. Verse 29, he says, Otherwise, why do people, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Right? If death, if death were the end, there's, there's no point being baptized on their account. There's, there's no future for them anyway. Might as well just forget them. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? You see, the fact that the Corinthians were concerned enough for the dead to be baptized on their behalf shows they implicitly believe in the resurrection. Furthermore, Paul himself 
acts in a way that is consistent with the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, it makes no sense for Paul to be living the way he is. Because he's putting his life in danger all the time for the sake of the gospel, and he doesn't actually mind doing that because he he really believes in the resurrection. Verse 30 to 31. Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. If you don't believe in the resurrection, that's not what you do. What do I gain? Humanly speaking, verse 32. If I fought with a beast at Ephesus. It's crazy. It makes no sense. Putting your life in danger like that for the sake of the gospel is... It's a stupid way to live if you don't believe in the resurrection. Let me tell you the best way to live if you don't believe in the resurrection. Or, or let Paul tell you, the philosophy is there at the end of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Might as well. Live for the moment. Live for pleasure. Live for yourself. Make no sacrifices for the gospel. Just enjoy as much as you can. All you've got is the moment anyway. All you have is this life. Just maximize your pleasure in this meaningless life and then die. That's it. If there's no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, if there is a judgment, if there is eternity, then that is the stupid way to live. But guess what? Some of the Corinthians were living that way. Some of the Corinthians who had believed the gospel were joining with their friends in the world who did not believe in the resurrection and were living like them. And so Paul says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't be influenced by those people. Those people don't know God and you are following them in sin. Wake up from your drunken sleeper. Wake up. Come to your senses. What are you doing? How can you be living that way? It's ridiculous. It's shameful. You believe in the resurrection or not? If you believe in the resurrection, then... Don't live as if this life is all there is. Live like people who believe in the resurrection, not like people who don't. Christian practice, if it's really Christian, presupposes the resurrection. When I was in secondary school, we had visitors from Canada who stayed with my family. And uh, during their visit, they came with us to a Chinese banquet. First course came out, and there was shark's fin soup, or whatever soup it was. I think those days always shark's fin soup. Huh? Nowadays, some people don't like shark's fin. Okay, anyway. Right? And everybody gets a bowl full. Right? And the second course comes out, and it's four seasons. Right? Now, by the time the second course was finishing, they were panicking a bit. They're eating as much as they can because they thought that's the main course. And they thought that they were, that's going to be it. 
And so they're worried, and they're worried for each other. So they say, come, 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 eat up, eat up. You, you. No, 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 you take, you know, because, actually not quite, you take, you, whatever, because, you know, you're going to need the food, you know, you're going to be hungry later. And the rest of us around the table kind of like knew better, and a little bit bemused by their panic. And much to their surprise and delight, the food kept on coming, course by course by course, so... By the time the 10-course meal was over, we had more than enough to eat. And in fact, because they stuffed themselves on the four seasons, they couldn't finish. (laughs) Are you willing to eat less in the course of this life because you know it's only the four seasons and the main meal is still coming? Are you willing to put your life at stake for the sake of the gospel because, hey, there's a resurrection? Are you willing to make sacrifices for the gospel in this life because you know there is another one, a better one? Or will you grab whatever you can right now and live as if this is it, there's nothing to come? Oh, I know many people in our congregations who are living in light of the resurrection. I can just probably pull you out one by one. Right? Let me give you a couple of examples without naming names. We've got a couple in one of our congregations. They've decided to live on one partner's income so the other partner can spend time doing ministry. If they didn't choose that, they could have a new car, a nicer house, and lots more money to spend, but They make life choices because of the gospel. Choices that don't make sense if not for the resurrection, but they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Take another young person many of us know. Extremely intelligent, highly capable. trained to be a lawyer. Could have been a top lawyer, had all the characteristics of one. Could be earning a bundle and getting all the respect that top lawyers get. Okay, forget the last bit about respect. We're talking about lawyers here, right? But still could be doing pretty well, right? Chuck that all in to devote a life to telling people about Jesus. Makes no sense if it wasn't for the resurrection. But she believes in the resurrection of the dead. Another couple from the traditional service. But they earn a lot, but their lifestyle doesn't seem to match it. You know why? Because they give generously to ministry. Makes no sense if it wasn't for the resurrection. But they believe in the resurrection of the dead. We have other people who suffer for the sake of the gospel. People who can't go home because they believe in Jesus. That's really hard. But that's the choice they've made. Makes no sense, if not for the resurrection. But they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? 
Do you live as someone who believes in the resurrection of the dead? Here's a, a little test you can administer to yourself. Paul says back in verse 19 that if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me ask you a question. Could people pity you if there was no resurrection? Is your life such that if someone who didn't believe in the resurrection were given the opportunity to examine it, they would say, oh, this poor deluded fellow, this poor silly girl, missing out on this and this and this because because they believe in that Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Would they say that about you? Or would they say, oh yeah, religion kind of helps him along, makes him a slightly better person than he otherwise would be, but otherwise, actually, he's just like any one of us. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And do you live as someone who believes in the resurrection of the dead? Does your behavior presuppose the resurrection? Does the way you live only make sense in light of the resurrection? As we close, let me go back to the questions we asked at the beginning of the sermon. Is there life after death? Of course there is. And when Jesus returns, we will be raised. How do we know? Because Jesus was raised from the dead and seen by many eyewitnesses. And because the Spirit opened our hearts to believe the gospel. If we believe the gospel and we believe in the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ assures us that those who belong to Christ will be resurrected and join him in his eternal kingdom under his Father forever, where things will be as they were truly meant to be. That is God's plan. So, brothers and sisters, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So let's live our lives now in light of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son has indeed died for our sins and has indeed been raised from the dead. And we thank you that his resurrection assures us 
that when he returns we will be raised as well. And that we will be with him. Reigning with him in your kingdom under you in glory forever. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this great assurance and for this great future. Our Father, we pray that you help us to be people who live our lives as those who believe in the resurrection of the dead. May we be people who are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel in the here and now because we know that we don't miss out. And we know of the resurrection and the glory to come. Keep these hopes firmly in our minds, we pray. Help us not to lose sight of the resurrection truths as we mingle and live our lives with people in this world who do not have this hope. as we associate each day with people who have only got this world's horizons. And so can only try and maximize what they can now. Please forgive us for the times when we've forgotten this. when we've developed attitudes that mimic the attitudes of the world and we've made decisions that mimic the priorities of the world. Help us to remember the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of our bodies, and to live in light of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.